Well, good morning. So I take it this is the crowd that wasn't out too late partying last night. <laughs> you all look very alert if you were. <laughs> um, so thanks so much for coming. We'll probably have some stragglers. I hope that's not too disruptive. Uh, my name is Rob Sasser. I work with a Metropolitan Group, which is a social change agency headquartered out of Portland, Oregon. Um, we also have offices in Chicago, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C., and I'm based out of our Washington, D.C. office. This is my very first time in Detroit. I've been here for approximately 18 hours, of which I've spent approximately a quarter of that in the DIA. And I have nothing but great things to say about Detroit. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so first, I just want to get a sense of who you all are. Um, I'd love it if we could go around, just introduce yourself, your name, um, which organization you're with, um, and also what city and state, because I think some of you might be from the history conference, and so I just would love to get a sense of what the balance is of people from in-state versus out-of-state. Where's the chair for myself? What's that? Right here. Oh, yes, the packet, yep. of course. So shall we start with you? Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Natalie Dino. I'm a librarian from Michigan State University. I know um, Saturday morning sessions, it's always a bit of a gamble in terms of who's going to show up, but I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here with us today. So on the agenda, we all have packets by now, right? Great. Uh, on the agenda, it has me talking for 50-something minutes, and then there's a sort of question and answer at the end. Let's ignore that. <laughs> Let's have this be more of a dialogue. Um, please feel free to ask questions as we go along. 
Um, and if you have examples of where this has been relevant in your work, I, I welcome you to share that as well. Make sense? So um, to introduce you to the contents of your packets, uh, first I'm going to be introducing you to the research phase of this work. We have a two-pager that's the research summary. If you want more information, go to our website, creatingconnection.org, and click on research. It has the full um, research report, including all of the annexes, um, such as the, the national polling data, et cetera, that, that's behind that two-page summary. Uh, we've also developed a message framework and guide to help people talk about their work in different ways, and we'll talk about where that came from. Um, so that's in your packet. And then um, a part of this work is also about thinking a little bit differently about how we create experiences for audiences uh, that are more engaging, that, that help them to create the kinds of connections that we're hearing from our research that people crave. So we have a little two-page uh, tool there that's your creating experiences guide. That's just an example of one of um, the tools that we also have on our website. Again, these are all free of charge. Go to our website, click on tools, and um, we welcome you to download these things. Uh, begin implementing them into your work and email us and let us know how it's going and what you're learning in the process. So um, I'm not going to belabor the point too much on this opening. Uh, I, I trust that we probably all have shared context here in the sense that we get that arts and culture is fundamental to who we are as a society. There's plenty of research that tells us that it's key to uh, um, cognitive development for young people, that it produces economic gains for our communities that, out, that far outweigh our investment in those programs, um, that it helps us develop social bonds, and perhaps most importantly, given that most people make decisions based on this, it gives people pleasure, people enjoy uh, engaging in arts and culture. Despite that, however, um, the arts and culture field is too often on the defensive. Um, a good day for us is when our budget isn't being completely slashed, right? You know, we're often having to fight to make sure that we can keep our faculty in our schools. Um, when we look at public funding for the arts over the past 20 years, it's decreased by 30% when you adjust for inflation. So um, the arts and culture community, despite the fact that people get that it's important and they want it around, um, we're having to fight harder and harder just to try and um, maintain a status quo. So, you know, I mentioned I work for Metropolitan Group, uh, this agency out of Portland, Oregon. By the way, welcome to you who just walked in. Um, we've been working with Arts and West over the past few years to figure out, you know, it doesn't make sense to have each and every museum um, and each and every arts and culture institution in their community trying to prove its own relevance and trying to fight its own battles for budgets, et cetera, or bond measures. I mean, we really need to work as a community and as a collective to try and figure out how do we kind of win the, the broader argument in terms of really getting people to shift their cultural norms and their expectations around our field? And so uh, we set out with this goal, um, Arts and West Metropolitan Group, to make arts and culture a recognized, valued, and expected part of everyday life. I'm seeing some head nodding. Does this sound relevant to the work that you're doing? Okay. <laughs> Um, very quickly, I just want to give you uh, a background on the framework that we're using to um, shift those cultural norms. So Metropolitan Group has developed this approach that we call public will building. Um, two key points here, and if you have an interest in learning more, I welcome you to go to our website, metgroup.com backslash public dash will, and then there's a link there that takes you to a longer link that has the, the full article. Um, but two key takeaways from the public will building model are that it's really focused on what are the core values that people hold with respect to your issue um, or cause, um, rather than just thinking about it in terms of the science, um, really connecting with people in terms of the things that they care about every day and, that, and the things that they're prioritizing in their lives. And what are the linkages between the work that you're doing and those uh, values, those priorities? Um, secondly, a number of 
social movements have campaigns that are really grounded in mass media and marketing, um, where there's you know huge ad buys, there's you know big PR pushes and all of that. And in many cases, you know if what you're looking to do is just to pass a certain bond measure, that's not such a bad idea, right? Um, but if what you're looking to do is to shift cultural norms and expectations, you need a longer ground game. So we have a model that's really focused on grassroots engagement and engaging people in communities. And um, that's backed up by some media work on the back end, but it's really more of a 80% of the grassroots work with some, some ground, with some sort of you know, uh, cover, media, media, um, media cover, um, versus the other way around having this major investment in, in a media push. From our perspective, uh, the media push only works until somebody <laughs> spends more money than you on the media trying to push their own objective. So when we talk about trying to shift people's expectations and experiences with an entire sector, some people get a little daunted by that idea. <laughs> and I love sharing this example of the library sector because I think it's, it's one example. There's lots of other examples that we can talk about if you're interested in have this, having this conversation. Um, but this is a sector that, how many of you go regularly to your local library? Okay, I'm in, I'm in the right room. Good, just checking. I'm definitely, I love, love libraries. Um, it's a sector that, you know, back in the Carnegie era, there was this huge boom in the establishment of libraries, this huge investment in, in building libraries. And Andrew Carnegie's request was that, um, you know, he would help construct the spaces, but the public needed to invest in keeping them going and providing the services. And that model worked for several decades. Um, it wasn't until the 1970s where you began to have some infrastructure that was crumbling. Um, you had some libraries that were fighting a little bit more to prove their relevance in the community. We had some budgets that were getting cut. That means that there were hours that were getting cut. That means that there were people that were getting cut. Um, and there were some leaders in the library sector who stepped back and said, well, wait a minute. Um, we were never meant to just be rooms full of books. There's got to be more that we offer that um, communities are seeking. Let's step back and really get a sense of what is it that we offer that communities really value. And what they realized is that communities valued libraries as gateways to opportunity. So these are the places that you go to learn how you open up a small business. This is where you go to get help with your homework. It's where you go to get naturalization assistance and increasingly um, help accessing the healthcare marketplace. So it's not just that these are places where you can go and check out media, but these are places where you can go and get access to the internet if you don't have it at home. It's where you can get access to opportunity big picture. And libraries embrace that, um, not only in terms of how they began to talk about themselves, um, my agency worked with King County Library and some other library systems, uh, this is a couple of decades ago, helping them to kind of reframe how they think about their, their messaging, but also in terms of their programming, really thinking differently about if that's what people are valuing in community in terms of libraries, how can we think about what we offer in different ways to make sure that we're offering what people are looking for? And as a result, in the past 10 years, there have been more library branches that have been built since the Carnegie era. Uh, more library branches built than in the Carnegie era, I should say. And my very favorite data point that I will share today, which is one that I personally researched, is that in 2014, more people went to a library and checked out a piece of material than went to all college or professional sporting events combined. So libraries aren't struggling to prove their relevance uh, in the same way that they were um, at the time when the digital age was beginning to boom. They're, they really found their place as a convening space in communities. Let me just pause there. Any kind of initial reactions or questions before I dive into the research? Okay, all right. So um, as I mentioned with the public wheel building model, there's this real emphasis at the front end on a research phase. We spent a little over a year digging into what are people's values as it relates to the work in the arts and culture space. Um, 
Lisa, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Michigan is in part sort of a birthplace for this work. So the research pilots that we conducted were here in Michigan, in Minnesota, Oregon, and San Jose, California. We conducted a national survey, uh, and then we had oversampling in each of those pilot sites. We then um, did focus groups and informal discussions in each of those pilot sites, as well as uh, executive interviews with community leaders among communities of color to make sure that we were um, uh, collect, uh, collecting extra data um, around how to engage uh, more diverse communities in our work. So before I move on to the next slide, I just want to ask, and some of you may have kind of already looked ahead, so if you have, just uh, keep it to yourself for a moment, but I'm wondering, when you think about the value that people connect, that people associate with uh, arts and culture, um, do you have a sense of what one of the primary values may be? Any guesses? Yes? I mean, it allows them to express their own ideas. Uh huh. Take learns. Um, I work in the aviation museum, so yeah. there's not necessarily something that you would think about being in, in that sort of museum, but mm -hmm. um, it's all over the place. Yeah. Helps, helps them express themselves. Mm -hmm. Any other? Yes. Sense of context for their lives. You guys would have been a really interesting focus group. <laughs> Any other guesses? Yes. There absolutely are elements here about um, getting to know yourself better. So these, many of, much of what you all are saying are different kind of flavors on this core value that we heard that was about connection. Um, interestingly, my colleague, Kevin Kirkpatrick, who's out of our Chicago office, he's the one who did the focus groups in Michigan, which was pretty early in our research process, and I was talking to him on the phone last night, and he said, you know, Rob, the whole connection piece that really underpins our entire initiative began in the suburbs of Detroit. He was doing some focus groups, and um, people kept using this word over and over again in different ways. And so he actually changed the focus group guide before he went to Traverse City to make sure that he was really dialing into that. And it was so popular there that when he went to Grand Rapids, he tested it further, and we've been testing it ever since, and it really has become the sort of unifying factor in terms of how we think about how we talk about the value of arts and culture and creative expression. Um, it's this idea of connection, and when we say that, we mean connecting with oneself, getting to your point, um, connecting with their family and their loved ones, particularly children, um, connecting with the community at large. And not only are we hearing that they see arts and culture as providing this, but this is also something that people increasingly crave more of in their lives. I did want to share just two quick slides. I wasn't involved in the, um, in the national survey at this time, um, but in the national survey where we had the oversampling, um, I wanted to share that some of the other values that people identified were family was, was very high, and in Michigan specifically, it was eight to 11 points higher um, in terms of people valuing family. Health and well-being was also very high. Both of those things get to some of the benefits of the arts and culture field, so that'll pop up a little bit later in our conversation. Um, but in both cases, uh, there was a very high value for health and well-being and family, um, and more so than uh, many other pilot sites. Yes, sir. Well, I, I, this is really interesting with connections, because <laughs> several years ago, when I was doing research at Old Sturbridge Village, uh -huh. trying to find out why, pe why people were coming in and what they valued from their experience, okay. I explicitly heard from a, a lot of people coming in I'm here to make a connection with my kids. Yes, exactly. And then I went on to do further study yep. to find out other kinds of connections, but that was the explicit thing they were saying, which, and using that language. Huh. 
So I want to make sure we connect at the end of the day, just so we're trading information, because I'd love to learn from whatever um, research you had done here here in the state. Be great. Sure. Yeah, I can send That'd be wonderful. Thank you. Um, but I'm glad that this is consistent with with what you were also hearing. Um, also, I, I just want to share this. This is one of the um, other items that popped out as being higher in Michigan than in the other pilot sites. When we asked people what was important to them in their community safety, um, was high in, in many of the pilot sites, but it was uh, three to um, 12 points higher um, in Michigan than it was in the other pilot sites. So there's this real value for family, health and well-being, and safety um, here, in, here in Michigan. Excuse me. Yes. That's, I doubt that they are. So if you give me your card, I can, I can send them over to you. I'd be happy to. So another piece of this is around how do we talk about our work? And we were a little language agnostic at the beginning of the research because we realized that a lot of the surveys that are out there are framed kind of to, to ask the question, you know, how, what, what value would you put on arts and culture versus these other things, right? And we realized that maybe when people think about the stuff that we care about and that we, that we talk about, they may not be thinking about it as arts and culture. So we, uh, during the focus groups, we would just ask people, you know, if you could do anything, if you had more hours in the day, what would you do more of? And we would just chart all of those things up. It would be gardening, it would be learning mom's meatball recipe, it would be I'd finish that scrapbook I once started, I'd learn to play the guitar again, I'd go running, like all of those activities. And we would then circle the ones that we would label as arts and culture, and we would ask people, so what would you call these circled activities? And they typically approach the work thinking about it in terms of creativity, expression, getting to what you were saying earlier, or sometimes this notion of creative expression. And so we've been testing that um, further, especially as we're moving into the pilot stage. Um, we just uh, tested this message frame uh, um, through focus groups in Massachusetts, for example. And we're finding that whereas if you continue to use that sort of frame of arts and culture, um, that that can continue to help you open up doors and open up conversations with certain audiences, probably the audiences that you're already engaging. Um, if you're looking to engage broader and more diverse audiences, you may find that this frame of creative expression um, uh, creates a space where people are able to see themselves in what you're doing a little bit more. So when we talked about arts and culture, it was often this idea of real distance. There was this assumption of talent. Um, people think about it as the ballet. That people, they think about it as you know, learning Shakespeare in school, um, whereas when we talk about creative expression, they see it as something that they make that connection between sitting at home and reading a book before they fall asleep and the work that we do more directly than when we talk about it as arts and culture and certainly as the arts. Any questions so far? Okay, we're doing good for time, so we're going to have some space at the end to kind of sit down and... Yes? So when I hear creative expression, yeah. it means nothing to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really important and critical to all that we're doing. But to me, creative expression doesn't say anything to me. Are you mm. finding that at all? Sorry. And, you know, as I say, we are just beginning to, to test the messaging. Um, I wouldn't. I mean, I get it, what you're. I get it. Yeah. But I, it doesn't. Like, when you just said the example with libraries and it's mm -hmm. about the door to opportunity or Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 If you found that it was sort of 
you're creating the idea in people's heads um, and trying to move it away from another idea that they have already and feel like that's, this is, it's going somewhere. Yeah. So two thoughts there. One, it might be that as we continue to test this, it might be that it moves closer to a frame around creativity versus creative expression or something along those lines. The only place where I've heard pushback so far on this frame has been from people who are deeply embedded in the arts and culture community saying, that doesn't make sense to me and I don't, I'm not sure what that, but you know, when we're you know, in rural Massachusetts, it hasn't had the same sort of pushback. Um, so, uh, but I, it is something that I want to continue to test and, and further refine, yes? So we were very um, we were very careful as we walked into the focus group through the focus group guide such that um, we layered in that information. So at the very beginning, when we're asking people to circle activities and all of that, they don't know necessarily whether we're from a sports league or if we're from a marketing firm or you know. And then it gets to later on. It's actually in many cases it's as the focus group is winding up. And most people you'd think like the focus group wants to leave the room. People just wanted to stick around and say. So tell us about what, what are you doing exactly with all of this? And then we tell them about the initiative. And they want to stick around and have coffee and be like, the next group is coming in five minutes. <laughs> Go to our website. But I, <laughs> I'd love to continue the conversation. So no, we were um, both in the survey and in how we engaged people, um, less so in the, uh, in the executive interviews, because in many cases they knew who we were. But, um, but yes, we've been very careful to make sure that we don't bias how they approach the, yeah, the responses. Yes, sir? You are, we are two slides away from that, actually. Yes. So let me, let me whiz through this next one, because it, you probably, it's probably not um, news to too many of you. However, it is worth stating that um, when people talk about the work that we're doing, regardless of what terms they're using, whether it's arts, culture, creativity, expression, whatever, um, they do talk about there being very tangible benefits that they get from this, from, from what we do. So in terms of it reducing their stress, in terms of it, you know, helping their, um, mother maintain her cognitive abilities late in life um, in terms of just making them happier and healthier. And so that gets back to, remember the, val the value slide where family was first and health and well-being was second? There is, people have that connection if we help them make that connection. And we'll get to that in the messaging in a moment. But getting to your point about audiences, um, we have found that there are four demographic segments, each of which are very broad demographic segments that we think are untapped markets for this work. Um, we are just beginning to drill down through additional surveys to try and understand the psychographics so we can get more specific than these four broad demographics. But what we're finding is that um, younger people, women, parents of children under the age of 18, and people of color are more likely to uh, believe that uh, creativity and expression are important in their lives, which when I show this slide, many people in the arts and culture community say, that's not my audience. So we think that this is, we see the real potential for there to be untapped markets to, to engage. Um, just to share some data that, that backs this up, when we ask the question about you know, whether people consider it to be important to be creative, artistic, or to express their culture, people under 40 were 26% more likely than people over 40 to, to agree with that statement. Par uh, parents of children under the age of 18, 24% more likely. People of color, 17%. Women, 10% higher than men. And there were, you know, these are just a, a sample of a few questions, um, but it was, it was pretty consistent across the research that these are for broad demographic categories that, um, that really see value in what we're doing. So that's great. We need to figure out how to engage them then. 
Does that help to answer your question? Okay. So this next slide is my least favorite slide, but luckily it's not my last slide. Um, and that's that there was a set of findings that were around barriers that people see to engaging in our field. Um, I'm curious to know, what do you think some of the biggest barriers were for people? Money, yep. Time. Time, yep. That sort of, yeah, that distance, absolutely, yeah. Huge, absolutely huge. Yep. Yeah. Acceptance. Oh. To go into a museum perhaps for the first time. Feeling welcomed. Absolutely. Just sometimes crossing that threshold um, can be overwhelming for some people, for sure. Yeah. Or they just don't feel welcome. So uh, some of the, the biggest barriers that we found were first, people see it as a nicety and uh, not a necessity. And so, you know, while they say it's important, it's just not as important as all these other things that they have to do in their daily lives. Um, they, time and money came up again and again, both in terms of why they don't go to the, you know, formal institutions more, as well as why they don't necessarily just, you know, color at home more or sit in, in bed and read their books. Time and money continued, were, were pretty consistent barriers across that informal to formal engagement spectrum. And then there's this whole piece here that this initiative is really working to try and unravel, which is that um, people often find that when they go, particularly to these formal institutions, that there is that distance. It's the, you know, welcome to our museum. Please stay behind the velvet rope. Here's the audio tape. Try and keep your conversation down. Don't touch anything. Have a great time sort of experience. And um, they are craving, you know, going back to this connection thing, they're craving opportunities to engage with people, to think about things, to experience things, to be a part of the moment. Um, there's a, so I live in DC, for those of you who came in a little bit later, there are a number of Smithsonian museums to choose from, but the Hirschhorn has this whole magnet wall and they have all of these um, uh, abstract magnets, it's like umbrellas and canes and gears and that kind of thing, and so there's this one wall where for a moment you can do your own art up on the wall of a Smithsonian museum and then you take a picture of it and it goes on social media and all of that. And you know, whenever I have people come to visit, Hirschhorn, out of all the other Smithsonian's, becomes one that I make sure to take people to because they love just having that moment of, have, of having their art up on the wall of a, of a Smithsonian museum. You know, um, being able to engage in it and, and create their own art. Um, people people crave that. People enjoy that. And they're um, often, when coming to formal institutions, aren't finding as many of those opportunities as they'd like. And I think there are moments where we're hearing from the arts and culture field. Some of that ties back to the budget problems that we've been having. So, you know, as we cut budgets, we're cutting some of the talkbacks. We're not doing as many of the backstage tours and that kind of thing. And what we're hearing is, actually, we need to be doing more of that. So that's the research. Let me just pause there. Any sort of big picture reactions? Anything surprise you with this? Does this reinforce some of the research that you've been doing? Mine was more individual interviewing people uh -huh. and getting their perceptions. We yeah. didn't feel the history, so it's not, um, mm -hmm. it's not this type of research. Like yeah. Yeah. Way. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm working on a project where our staff is going to all 88 counties and visiting community events, and we're trying to hear from those we don't normally hear from. But I'm, so the question of, you know, do you, how do you introduce yourself? It's funny because when we're asking them to share stories with us about living in their community, uh -huh. it's, it's a lot of times they're hesitant because they think we want a historically accurate depiction of something that happened in their town.
have. Yeah. All we're wanting is their stories, if, if they're willing to share those with us. And so I really like this idea of uh, kind of kind of uh, disassembling how they think about history, and that is yeah. really, and, and I think the history field is moving yeah. much more toward uh, storytelling than as opposed to these are, you know, always, this is the date, and this is the, the yeah. kind of, so going, trying to get in the other population to come to our museum or to be engaged in local history and talking about storytelling, I think, is um, provocative. So uh, I love the idea of getting to creative expression if that's what you, they are naming what mm -hmm. they're doing. Mm -hmm. I like that idea. That's something we'll explore. Uh, that's, yeah, and so you, we're going to trade cards later anyway, but as you do that, I'd love to find out how that's working and what okay. you're learning through the process and which language works better than other language. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because this whole idea of this field helping people to find and share their voice, um, some people like both elements of that, but some people say what they really want is that idea of being able to find their voice, but not everyone wants to share their voice, you know? And so I, I wonder if there's a piece there where it's like you create the opportunity for them to tell their story and maybe share it or maybe they don't sort of thing, but like still, you know, still find their place in history. Yeah. I'm curious about your audience So, so the question is, um, what do people under 40 value about this work more than the people over 40, right? And I think that my, my hope is that that's a piece that we're going to start to uncover by drilling a little bit deeper with psychographics. As we said, this is a, these are pretty broad categories, and not everybody under the age of 40 necessarily cares about this work. Um, but we are trying to get a sense of, for example, you know, is it the people who were encouraged to be artistic and creative at a young age who are really being drawn to this work, um, even later in life, you know, when they're in their 30s. It might be that that, that ends up um, being something that's, that's very telling for us in terms of the types of people that we can and should be engaging, and in terms of what we're doing with people younger in their life. Um, I don't have a great answer for you today, but maybe a year and a half from now we'll have a better one. Um, but it's, that is, that's a great sort of follow-up question in terms of as we're digging deeper, we'd love to know the answer to. Yes? Or retired, they actually dive back into the arts again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like the under 40 thing is cutting the whole thing with the population. So, uh, you know, so you're actually tapping on something that's a really important point that I didn't make, which is we're not suggesting just focus on these four audiences and you don't have to worry about talking to the people that you've been talking to all along. Um, in our work every day, and we need to keep talking to them, and we need to keep talking to them in the language that's working for engaging them. What we're saying is that we think that we're hearing from the arts and culture field that they want to broaden and diversify their audiences. And what we're saying is, if that's one of your aims, these are four broad demographic segments that we should be beginning with. And we need to drill deeper in, in terms of figuring out who within those audience segments we really need to be, be prioritizing. But um, th this is where what we're suggesting is a starting point for just reaching broader audiences. Yeah. You know, you talked a lot about how important connecting is. Yeah. And looking at thinking again about the barriers, do, from your research, do people feel that arts and culture institutions are discouraging connections or preventing connections or... 
thought mm -hmm. about them that way. Yeah, yeah. So the question, I'm just repeating this for the guy who's recording back there. The question is, um, do people believe that the arts and culture field, uh, formal arts and culture institutions are discouraging connection? It's, it's a good question. Um, I'm, so I'm, when I'm thinking back to the focus groups, I, I don't remember anyone saying that necessarily that they felt that they were being shut out in some sort of active way, as much as it really gets back to, I, I've forgotten your first name? Jody. Jody. What Jody was saying in terms of some people just don't feel very welcome um, coming through the door. So that, that's absolutely a disconnecting piece. And, and, I, and while I didn't hear this stated so much explicitly in focus groups, it probably amongst family, as we're talking about this, it's, we could probably acknowledge that some of that actually has been by design. There certainly have been arts and culture institutions that have been trying to create you know, communities of people that were meant to have a certain socioeconomic status, et cetera, and that actually were meant to be exclusive. Um, and what we're saying is that was really effective, but now we need to, <laughs> but if we're, going to, if we're going to be relevant in society, we need to undo that. Um, uh, and that when they get there, that, um, you know, I, I think kind of across the spectrum of people, they're, they're just, they're saying that they, they want more chances to engage. Um, I think it's more that in some cases, it might be that the arts and culture field just hasn't necessarily seen that that's the value versus that they see that that's the value and have been trying to deliberately ignore it, if that makes sense. I kind of have, um, I don't know if it's really a question. Um, in our museum, we're finding that, uh, I mean, families come in and they're all interacting together as a family, but uh, we don't have a lot of interaction between various families. So, like, yeah. I'm not going to go and talk to him about what we're both looking at. Yeah. Um, and I find, I'm not, I'm going to admit, I'm not really an art person. I'm not an art museum person. Um, times I have gone, I feel like art museums don't encourage that because it is a very quiet environment. Mm -hmm. It's very, there's security walking around. Yeah. Like, don't do that. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, it yeah, doesn't yeah. really um, encourage that connection from one family to another family or one person to another mm -hmm. person um, as a community. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't really know if that's like question, but I kind of want to know how we get past that barrier uh, as an, I mean, we're not an art institution, but as an institution yeah. in general and being able to include that art in that connection. It's a great question. Um, you know, how do you get people to create new connections through the work versus just reinforcing the connections that they walked in your venue with? And I have a couple of thoughts. You know, one is on the one hand, getting back to the, thank you so much for joining us, by the way. Thanks for coming. Um, for those who have to sneak out early, I do have interest forms, so you're welcome to fill it out, um, drop it off on the back table if you uh, would like to join our mailing list, if you'd like to be updated as um, we consider bringing this work to Michigan, for example, um, we'd love to, love to be able to stay in touch with you. And if you're not from Michigan, just ignore the Michigan part of the form and please check off all the boxes as if it said Ohio or, you know, or Idaho. Um, so two thoughts going back to, to your question. Um, the first is when we look at the values uh, with people really valuing the family and their relationships, a part of it is if they just walk in the door and you're creating the space for them to create deeper connections and lasting memories with the people that they care about, that's, that's a good thing. And as long as we are creating the space where that's okay and where they're okay to have those conversations and where in fact they're encouraged. Um, to your point in terms of like how do we build community, there have been some initiatives where, for example, the 
um, Washington, the, the uh, National Symphony Orchestra goes to, goes to the community um, and they go to local churches and they go to you know, the communities that are already formed um, and perform and engage in those spaces, which again, those are sort of preformed communities of people, but it's, it's getting people to engage and interact um, and to meet with the artists and seeing the instruments in their space and feel, feeling like um, rather than having to be welcomed into some other space, um, they're welcoming some. They're welcoming arts and culture to theirs. That's what a follow on that. Yeah. Most of you may know that they also target several states each year. I'm from Kentucky. Oh yeah. And they came to Kentucky two years ago. I'm with the historical society. Terrific. But they divided and conquered, and it was an ensemble of world-class musicians yeah, yeah, yeah. that did the most dynamic, fun program, complete with costumes and everything. <laughs> I mean, it could have been more disarming for any of those, any of us that might have felt hmm. somewhat unwelcome or un. Yeah. And it was, oh, it was just most exciting to see uh, them not only come to these states begrudgingly, but come just thrilled. Uh, yeah. right. All kinds of organizations, schools, churches, historical societies, mm -hmm. it blew us away. They were just fabulous um, um, musically, but also in terms of their desire to really engage something. That's, that's great. And I also welcome people who are in the field. If you have examples of things that have worked well for you to help and get different families to connect, please share those. Yes. So uh, as a mother, uh, two experiences that I've had that have been positive is um, at the Columbus Museum of Art, there is some, uh, I think it's called the Creativity Room. Um, and so it's an intimate space, and kids are creating, and the parents are around them. And uh, a, a lot of parents talk to a lot of parents they don't know. It's just kind of, mm. you know, <laughs> yes, Lisa. Um, I have a question about um, the phrase that you're using of arts and culture. Yeah. Um, because in Michigan, our, as we know, we have the Michigan Council for Arts and Cultural Affairs. Yeah. And, and um, they're wonderful and we love them. But um, I feel like sometimes the culture is just sort of a tuck on. Um, and the, cult, the organizations that are, or, are very cultural focused, but mm -hmm. not necessarily.
Mm-hmm. Is it, I mean, because you can say, you could be talking about performing arts and then sort of there's cultural aspects of that, but are you talking about the humanities also? We, we are talking about the humanities as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then are you finding, is there any separation there? You know, are you finding that there are people that are, um, do, do, you, do you know what the question is that is it too big of a question? Um, it, it is a, it's, it's, it's a doozy of a question. Um, so where I've gotten the most pushback on this piece has been um, related to um, cultural identity and people um, pushing back on the notion that the field, um, while they see that, you know, let's say, let's say it's the, um, let's say it's Inuit culture. They see this field as creating the space for people to engage with and understand Inuit culture, but the, there's the concern that sometimes it can be in a very sort of like cultural tourism sort of way. So yes, you, you know, um, you may see a performance, you may, uh, you know, buy the mug that's the Dia de los Muertos mug, you may, you know, eat the taco at the, at the cart, and you're experiencing art and culture. People get that, like, those are all different ways that they're experiencing art and culture. Um, and, and the expression of a culture, but there, um, we, we get pushback from people saying, but that's, that is just a fragment of a culture and it doesn't mean that they get the culture or it may make them think that they understand the culture when they really they have no idea what they're talking about or they've never really gotten a deep understanding of it. Um, I, haven't heard too, I haven't heard people kind of separating it necessarily in, in the sense that you know, the humanities isn't really what this is about. People. So far, people seem to kind of understand that it's all a part of a, of a broader field. But Yes? Uh, in my experience, um, there are like certain kind of state um, arts commissions that deal directly with um, visual arts, and then there's um, art and, and culture councils that kind of deal with mm-hmm. One more, and then if you don't mind, I'm going to go through, because the next piece of this is where this stuff gets really interesting. Well, just coming back, I'm, I'm kind of sort of immigrant, so when I heard arts and cultures, exactly what Lisa said, it's about performance, yeah. theater, and stuff. But the word culture itself, I immediately associate with my culture. Mm. Rather mm-hmm. than we're based on like um, these footballs where everybody has individual because they're coming from all different place. That's Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Do you mind if I whiz through a couple of slides? Because I think that's going to be really interesting fodder for more discussion as well. So the, the research phase was really just, that was just to help tee us up to how should we as a community be working more collaboratively to think about how we talk about our work and um, how we talk about the benefits our, of our work in ways that are going to really resonate with people, as well as how we think about the work that we do and how we shift our programming. So going back to that library example, it's not just about 
saying that we're you know, talking about ourselves in a different way, but it's also thinking about what do people value and how are we designing our programming such that we make sure that we're delivering on that value. And so we have developed a message frame that's um, it's not designed to be language that I suggest any of you copy and paste into your annual report or something like that, but rather it's just the strategic framework for how we can begin um, speaking with a more unified voice about the value of the work that we do. And the core message here, not surprisingly, is uh, making sure that we're talking about this idea of connection. So if, if you are, um, if there's a, you know, a particular, if, for example, the storytelling piece, if you're trying to promote that, it might be that you know, one of the lead messages is you're talking about how you're helping to, uh, for people to create connections across their community, but also across time, and you know, ha having people find their, their place, um, create a connection with themselves in the, in the historical context, or something along those lines, right? Um, the message here, if you, can, if you can read it, sharing creative experiences and expressing our own creativity builds powerful connections with people, with our community and the world around us, and with ourselves. Again, those are ideas that you can then leverage in your messaging, not necessarily the words that you would use. Going back to the um, values that came up, family and relationships, health and well-being, learning and self-improvement, so we list these here just so that when we're thinking about the kinds of metaphors that we're using, when we think about the kinds of language, when we think about the kinds of imagery that we use to um, make sure that we are resonating with these values. So um, you know, going to the family and relationships, if you have a performing arts group and you're advertising that, you know, very often what we see are photographs of the performers up on the stage, you know, that beautiful ballerina. Um, and, I, and there's a place for that in your marketing, right? That's a part of what you're selling. At the same time, you may want to make sure that you have really prominent images of the mother sitting in the chair looking over at her daughter with that look of wonder on her face as she's seeing the ballerina. So you have images that are helping to reinforce this idea that they're going to build relationships, they're going to build powerful, lasting memories with the people that they care about through the work that we do. So, um, and we do have a, a photography tips guide that's on our website, creatingconnection.org as well, so you can, um, there's some tips there to help spark your thinking in terms of how you select imagery. We also wanna make sure that we're talking about the benefits of our work um, and not hiding behind some of the, the benefits that, that we provide. Uh, happiness and growth are pretty consistently, not only the, when we test these benefits messages and we invite people to identify which one they like the most and also which they find the most motivating. Um, happiness and growth are pretty consistently the highest. That is also consistent with the research that um, we did here in, in Michigan. Um, Well-being uh, and um, voice, getting back to this voice piece being helping us find our voice but also experiencing the voices of others. Would it be helpful if I just kind of quickly go through the benefits messaging that we've crafted? I'm seeing heads nodding. So. Um, happiness, expressing our own creativity and experiencing something creative contributes to our happiness by making us more present in everyday moments and creating lasting memories of good times spent with those we love and it's fun. What I find interesting is um, when I talk to arts and cultural leaders about this, some of them will say, you know, actually one of the reasons why our museum exists is because we want people to have a good time. We do want to create these kinds of experiences. But at the same time, many of them kind of think of themselves as being like important institutions and so they don't want to talk about that, right? They're like, I would never talk about like come and have a good time sort of thing. And what we're saying is, well, this is actually one of the things that people are really looking for. That's a part of how they're making priorities in their daily life. So if you really are trying to create experiences where people are going to have a good time, let's not hide behind that. Let's, let's put that up front in our messaging. This growth piece, uh, experiencing our own creativity and experiencing something creative helps us grow and find personal fulfillment 
It teaches us and challenges us, and it helps us to understand and empathize with others. Well-being, expressing our own creativity and experiencing something creative promotes our health and well-being, reduces stress, promotes lifelong brain health, and connects us with what's most important in our lives. So this, when we open up the question and ask people what the benefits are, this well-being piece is by far the one that comes up the most just organically. Um, so going back to the focus group approach, when we would say, okay, so we've, buck we've, we've uh, listed all these things that you would do if you had more time. I've circled some of them. Using the language that you use to describe what that bucket of things would be, what kind of benefits does that give you if you had more of that in your life? What kind of benefits would it give your community if you had more of that? And overwhelmingly, people talk about how it just helps them unwind. It helps them reduce their stress. They sleep better at night. It's all of this health and well-being stuff. When we then ask people to come back and prioritize which they like the best and which motivate them the most, it's typically those happiness and growth messages that are a little bit more motivating. So I, I think that's kind of interesting in the research in terms of those aren't the first things that people mention in terms of being the benefits. Um, so there's, there's definitely space. And not any institution is necessarily going to be offering all four of these benefits through every activity. Um, but as you're thinking about what you're trying to promote, thinking about which of these are most relevant and making sure that you're, you're including that in your marketing um, should resonate with your audiences. The last piece being voice, creative expression empowers everyone to find and share their voice, exposing us to new perspectives and ideas and enabling us to experience the creative voice of others, including artists of all kinds. Anything surprising with the benefits messaging? Yeah. Um, you may have touched on this earlier, um, but for so long, we've been, it's been drilled into economic impact. Economic oh, yeah. Impact, and, and yet, this is very personal, but mm -hmm. I mean, I think those of us in history can really own these kinds of things mm -hmm. more than some sort of quantitative economic impact formula. So this is actually getting back to your flagging something that I didn't mention that I think is worth mentioning. <laughs> so I'm glad you guys are keeping me on my toes. Um, so this is the messaging that we're recommending, especially when we're trying to engage those broader and more diverse audiences, right? There is, if you're talking to a legislator, if you're talking to a foundation, you want to keep driving home that economic benefits message because that's actually, that's the piece that they care about, and there's strong data to support that argument. Yeah, and I'm not saying you can't use these right, with right, those. Right. Yeah. But, but we, what we've done is just taken this out of the equation right. and sort of forced ourselves to, to fabricate a compelling economic message that may or may not be there, frankly. Yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of data to support the economic piece. But uh, so in focus groups, we'd actually, when we get to the end of this, um, there's always like that list of questions that you ask if you have that extra five minutes sort of thing. And we would test the whole economic message, and honestly, people in the public, they don't think it's true. Like, even if you say, like, you know, conclusive research has shown that investing in arts and culture provides more benefits to the community than the initial investment, people are like, I don't buy it. Yeah. And well, people attend these kinds of activities, and they do uh, sporting events. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it's just, that doesn't excite them, that doesn't motivate them. They, it's like, it's, it's, that's not going to get them to walk through the door, necessarily. So we're not saying... You need to scrap that from how you talk about your work. It's more thinking about your audience and which message is going to resonate with them. It's a great point. I, this is very interesting. Thank you. One of the one of the things I'm thinking about, however, is you know the at the outset you referenced wanting to um, transition away from the perception of it being a nicety, mm -hmm. or a luxury, mm -hmm. and making it something that people feel as though it's indispensable. Yeah. 
and I apologize if you're getting to this. But, um, <laughs> one of the things that I think we all contemplate and, and continue to struggle with is these are wonderful messages, and I agree with everything Kent has said. Um, I guess an example being, I know I would be more healthy if I got up this morning and went for a run and didn't stay out till 2 o'clock in the morning, but I still stayed out till 2 o'clock in the morning, and I still didn't get up and run. So I guess how, how do you, given your research, see that messaging transitioning from something that people know makes them feel better and has that value into that indispensable piece? So great question. Um, we do, I think this gets back to that piece around connection, right? Because we are hearing that people are, they crave having more connection in their life and they're looking for ways to do it. And what's interesting when we talk about the work that we do in the context of connection, when we make that leap for them, they get it. Okay. But um, they, they wouldn't necessarily get there on their own, right? So we, we're hoping that by creating messaging and by reinforcing messaging that this is the thing that you're looking for more of in your life and we provide you with this great avenue for achieving it. Every time we test that message, people are like, oh yeah, I get it. It's, it's literally like watching light bulbs go off in terms of like, I really should. And we've had focus groups where afterward people say, I'm gonna go home and finish that scrapbook or I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna ask my mom to teach me that recipe. Like they, like they, it's like they hadn't really thought about they were putting it off because they saw it as kind of like this nicety thing, but the connection thing is more of a necessity for people. And um, so if we help them to make that cognitive leap, that we provide avenues for that. Um, and you know, again, we're testing this. Uh, this is, you know, we, we invite you to try this out and you can let us know, yeah, we tried it, it's not really working. We wanna learn from that. <laughs> um, but, but our working hypothesis is that by leading with that kind of message that it will shift people away from just seeing it as this Nice thing to do if you have time and money, which nobody ever has enough of, right? Did your, I'm sorry, did your research give you any sense of where other than through arts and culture people are finding those connections? Or what the, comp what the competition for creating connections? Yeah, um, so people do talk about the uh, athletic field, for example, sports. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about that, though, is when you talk about you talk about engaging with sports, and this, so to be really clear, this wasn't a part of our research, so this is more just kind of like informal discussions if I have five minutes at the end of a focus group kind of thing. So I don't have data to back this up, but just kind of anecdotally, when you talk to people about you know, engaging in the field of sports, nope, nobody ever says, oh, well, I, I can't engage in that field. Do you know how much it costs to go to an NBA game? In the same way, when you talk about like engaging in arts and culture, for example, people are like, oh, Broadway tickets are so expensive. And so a part of what we're trying to do by this sort of like creative expression frame is getting people to make the connection between the book that they lay in bed, staying up at night reading because they can't stop turning the pages, and the stuff that we're doing every day in the same way that they make that sort of cognitive leap between getting up in the morning and going running and watching a professional game on television. People see that at sports field as being a part of one big cluster and right now, too often, they see the stuff that they enjoy doing as being one thing, and the stuff that we offer as being this other thing over here. And we're hoping that the messaging wraps that all together. Maybe because talking sports is easier than talking arts. It's easier than talking arts? I, I mean, maybe. 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 
Um, okay, so let me just very quickly, so we also have this call to action message. We're just beginning to test this, but it's um, uh, in terms of, you know, we're going to start off with a connection message, being really explicit about benefits, thinking about how to reinforce values through messaging and metaphors, or for, through visuals and metaphors, and then some sort of call to action that you could then customize or tailor um, according to what sort of behavior or action you want your audiences to take. Um, most importantly, obviously, it's not just about getting to people to walk through your door, but when they walk through the door, they need to have the kind of experience that resonates with what you're offering. <laughs> so um, we do have in the back of your packet this establishing experiences guide. We have some more um, tools on our, our website in terms of thinking about how you might engage um, or how you might even define broader and more diverse audiences as it relates to your work. So please feel free to go to creatingconnection.org. These tools are, we have developed them for you. Please download them, please share them, please use them, please write back to us and let us know your experiences as you implement them because we want to learn from that. But the idea is that, you know, much as with that library's um, example, we need to figure out how to help people create these kinds of connections once they actually do come to our venues or when we go to their venues. So let me just, uh, two minutes in terms of what's next, and then um, I'll relinquish the floor to all of you. Um, so in addition to the tools, we have, I think where the rubber really hits the road with this initiative is where we're able to work with pilot sites. And in our implementation pilots, for example, we have a fully funded pilot that's been going on for approximately a year in Oregon. Um, we have a pilot that we believe is coming online in the next few weeks uh, uh, across the state of Massachusetts, and also in San Jose uh, area of California. We're exploring funding for Michigan, so that's why I have that interest form. So please do check off all the boxes uh, in terms of how you might want to be engaged if and when there's resources for us to come and bring this work to Michigan. Um, but what the implementation looks like is um, not only do we have uh, a series of kind of talks around the state so that we can kind of begin spreading the word and just kind of getting people familiar with this kind of basic work, we're also um, then engaging with a handful of organizations to really begin implementing this in their work every day. So in Oregon, for example, we selected seven organizations that represented the diversity of arts and culture institutions, everything from the High Desert Museum, which is a historical museum, to um, the uh, um, uh, Oregon Humanities, uh, to um, the uh, Ashland Shakespeare Festival, which by far has the largest budget. It's the no most notable and reputable arts institution in the state, as well as the Steens Mountain Ballet, which is this very small company in a county that has uh, more heads of cattle than people by an order of magnitude. Um, and so we really have looked at you know, diversity of both across that arts and culture spectrum, um, also thinking in terms of modalities within the arts field, geography, economic diversity, um, racial diversity. We've tried to you know, pick seven organizations that get us as many of those points as we can. Um, and then, so we've been working with them in terms of technical assistance. And you know, how, so if we want to incorporate this messaging into our work, how does that work? If we want to think differently about our programming, what does that look like in the context of the work that they're doing? Um, by doing so, it really helps to kind of like fine tune um, the approaches, but it also helps to inform how we're thinking about this initiative and what kinds of recommendations we would make to organizations of that size or of that type in other states or in other parts of Oregon or whatever. Um, so we're hoping to do something like that in Michigan where we could really get on the ground and, and work, um, work in community. Um, and then in, in addition to that, uh, on a national level, we're going to events like this and just trying to get, you know, try and drum up uh, interest and curiosity about this work and get people to think a little bit differently about the work that they're doing every day with the hope that they will download this stuff and keep in touch with us, just like Jody is going to. <laughs> I see you were at uh, Arts, and, or Impact Arts, or Arts Impact Ohio 
Yes, uh, that was my colleague, Anne. Yep. Great. Yep. So, I mean, I, I welcome, I mean, at this stage, I welcome your questions. I'm also just kind of curious when you think about the work that you do every day, how you see this being relevant to, and how you might think differently about your work. Yes? Some of the things that came out uh, people I interviewed about, how do you make the connection once someone enters your door? It's stories. They're good stories for them. Yeah. It's trying to work some kind of an emotional connection, which can be stories. Sometimes it's just the idea, concept behind the site will resonate with them. Hancock Shaper Village, living a pristine life. Or, I think that's how they work. But the <laughs> idea itself resonates and people connect with that. Mm -hmm. but the key, the, the, and just having a comfortable experience. Yeah. Old Sturbridge Village, being able to go and just sit down on the bench and watch things. Yeah. So there's, there's a number of behavior patterns you can foster. I mean, yeah, I mean, and that's how, before there were ballets, before there were, you know, before there was BIA, that's how we connected was through storytelling. It's been how we've always connected. Yeah. I try to connect different groups that come to the museum to come together. Um, there's, the, there's the collectors and the historians, mm -hmm. then we have the artists that exhibit, and then we have the U of M people that I'm connected with. And then I'm also on um, Nextdoor, you know, we can post events okay. and um, local newsletters with neighborhoods. So I get the locals in and the artists and historians, like we do stuff wine. <laughs> and they'll bring their kids. I have a couple cameras kids can run around and play with. Uh -huh. So I try to, I, I really, uh, we're making an effort to try to connect all those different segments or, or populations that come together. And now it's, you know, several of the young photographers are collecting some cameras that they talk to the old guys about and you know mm. and some of the older gentlemen are and, and women are using some of the more innovative um, techniques of photography that the, that the college students have been talking to them about and so oh that's great so it's it's there's almost like this um, there's this learning element of and so now they come they company. come to each other's events now more like it can be the crowd so cool I love that so many of you are actually actively trying to figure out how to create connections th through your work already. Is there anything else that you all have, have tried that's really working in this space? Uh, well, the okay, the Ohio Arts Council, the State Arts Agency, Ohio Citizens for the Arts, Arts Advocacy, Ohio Humanities Council, uh, Heritage Ohio, and Ohio History Connection. <laughs> all five of those in, uh, groups are coming together, and they put together an annual conference called Creative Communities. Uh, Creative Ohio call in transforming communities, and this is their third year doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm uh, just started working on that with them this year. So they're all trying to look toward how can our constituents, which are primarily leaders and administrators in, in those arts and cultural institutions, um, continue to operate. And this year we're thinking about you know kind of the future of our communities and working with all of these. Um, you know, the health and wellness and economic um, impact and yeah. uh, environmental studies and that sort of thing. And having people come in from those fields and educate our arts and cultural leaders and, you know, try to figure out where our place is. So every year it kind of changes what the theme is. And mm -hmm. that's what we're focusing on this year. That's so, terrific. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity, obviously, for across that field. And I think yeah. we're just starting to really explore that, which is great. That's really exciting. Yeah. yeah.
that is a, a piece of this, you know, as we're seeking funding and, and, and figuring out how to roll this out, a big piece of this for us as well is how do we begin involving the public health sector, for example, and how do we begin you know, reaching out to the other sectors that touch on our work? I'm just uh, really excited to share some of the stuff with uh, the arts and culture management um, program that I'm in at MSU yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and my fellow students and whatnot. So um, that's exciting. Good. I'm sure they're going to go. Is there they're, they're all over the place. Right? Yeah. So. Um, a lot of different institutions. So. Oh, cool. Well, make sure that you fill out the forms so that we can add you to our list so we can keep you updated. Yeah, Is there any of this stuff, um, I mean, Joey, kind of like going back to the idea that you had, are there any of these things that that feel relevant to you all in terms of things that you could incorporate into your work? Yeah. I mean, just creating, I, I mean, I've come into this as an exhibit person and just trying to figure out how to create an exhibit to bring all people together um, and to mm -hmm. include everyone. We try to um, tell the whole story, but we're people. We can't. We don't know how to just tell the whole story on all sides of the story. Um, so being able to be more open uh, and connecting everyone together and trying to tell the whole story of mm -hmm. Oregon Historical Society? Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm from Independence, Oregon. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> um, and so currently we have these, we have our one uh, gallery divided in half um, with two rotating exhibits in it. And one is called Democracy Blueprints, and it has copies of um, the Magna Carta, Monroe Doctrine, and, and the Constitution. And uh, people spend maybe about two or three minutes in that exhibit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and something else that you'll do, that I've seen you do really well, is, um, for example, you'll have like a talk that happens in the adjacent church, and you know it's, it'll be on a topic that's you know really relevant to what's happening in the community, and it'll really draw people in, and it's in a, it's like it's in their space, it's in a church that you know many people go to and feel very welcome in, 
And then you'll say, if you guys want to join us for a drink across the street, let's let's all go over. And it's just this very, it's not, it doesn't feel like you're walking into like the threshold of this, you know, museum, this historical museum. It kind of, at that point, it's like, you've already created that community and now you're just saying, hey, let's just go across the street together. And like everybody like starts wandering across the street and now they're suddenly in your, going through your door and having a very sort of social and it, they're allowed to make noise, they're allowed to clean glasses, they're allowed to, you know, like just have a good time and it's not about kind of, it's not that sort of idea of, you know, well, don't, don't touch the, the book that was in, you know, Chester Arthur's pocket or whatever that book is up on the wall or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, it's just kind of like, it, it is all about, you know, let's engage, let's interact, let's, let's, let's share a memory together. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, I welcome any other questions. I also um, realize that we only have four minutes to lunch, so if you guys want to try and break out and get to the front of the line, I would understand that as well. <laughs> oh! Oh! So thank you all for coming to a Saturday morning session after what I heard was a very active Friday night party scene. And uh, thanks for your really interesting questions. The, um, the hard questions helped me to kind of, I've been taking notes over here in terms of, it, that can help to shape how we think about, about this work, how we talk about this work. So I, I find that all really helpful. Um, again, website, creatingconnection.org. Fill out the form, let us know if you want to stay updated. I'll take that. Um, and if there was like stuff that I promised that I would send you, let's trade business cards. Yes. Like on the back of the table. So put them out, leave them here, leave them at the desk, or send them to the crew. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.